0: Hi, guys, and welcome back to You're on Crackmate, the podcast where we delve into movies, television series, and whatever it takes our fancy, really, analysing and reviewing them to the point where we've been told flat out, You're on crackmate. And I am delighted to be welcoming back this week the man who knows more about pretty much everything, really, than I ever will. The wonderful Joseph Hurley. How are you getting on? Not
1: too bad, Sean. I'm looking forward to discussing the Channing Tatum filmography with you this evening. Uh,
0: as am I, I really feel that uh, G.I. Joe, Right of the Cobra is one of the understated gems of the last 20 years.
1: I do feel that his lack of Oscar nomination for Step Up as well
0: is one of the greatest tragedies of our, uh, of our times. I feel he was robbed, robbed when 22 Jump Street came out. I mean, I Am Jeff alone should have secured Best Actor for him. <laughs> Look, if Channing Tatum can act, there's hope for the rest of us, really. That's, there was a poster, there was a poster in the drama society in college. It's a big poster of Keanu Reeves. And the legend says, if this man can act, so can you.
1: There seems to be a lot of kind of, um, you know, airbrushing of history. Like people kind of forget stuff like Johnny Mnemonic and things like that, that he would have been in the you know 90s, which were truly horrible movies.
0: Like Bill and Ted. Brilliant. The Matrix. Brilliant. And what about all the ones in between? Yeah, I suppose speed was all right. Um, Let's, at
1: least they're not doing the old Bruce Willis direct to DVD kind of uh, movie career at the moment. If you want to depress yourself, just go onto Google Play or whatever and just look up the most recent Bruce Willis
0: classics. They're absolutely dreadful looking. Like, you kind of wonder sometimes, that, because it's not even, you know, we sometimes, like in the past, you'd be like, did the studio just have reels of film spare? And they were just like, oh, we might as well... make movie. It's not even that new. Anyway. Everything's digital these days. So, like, why? Why is this a thing? Uh, thankfully, we are not here to talk about dreadful, terrible films, <clears throat> Bruce Willis, because um, we're going to talk about a great film from the 80s. And the funny
1: thing is, this is our fourth episode together, and it's the first time we're actually going to discuss Star Trek. And strange enough, it's not the movie I thought I'd be discussing at any point.
0: Uh, I, I love as well that the fact that the one we're talking about I'm looking at you through the camera and there's a big massive poster of Khan staring at me from behind I was just like alright this is cool
1: <laughs> <laughs> but see there's, it's kind of almost like shooting fish in a barrel if you are to talk about you know the wrath of Khan or whatever because they're the obvious ones to talk about and obviously for all the listeners out there we're actually going to be talking about Star Trek 3 the search for Spock from 1982, uh, 84 jeepers good lord Um <laughs> Sean, can you please change that part of the dialogue when you're nope. editing <laughs> We
0: go warts and all on this podcast. God mighty sick. You corrected us. That's the important part.
1: As my housemate correctly pointed out, he said, you're probably really nervous about this one because it's the first time you're actually discussing Star Trek. And I like, oh God, I wasn't thinking about it like that just yet.
0: <laughs> well, I am nervous now.
1: Uh, now I've made a mistake. Um... <laughs> um it's a kind of it, i suppose again as we discussed like you know there's a lot of obvious ones to pick the motion picture obviously the wrath of khan the voyage home even the final frontier and the undiscovered country they're really are the obvious ones to talk about because there's so many specific things about them that you can kind of discuss but the search for spock is completely overlooked Yet, mm. when you actually i suppose put into a bit of context and just try and put yourself in a position of existing in 1982 83 uh, and then 84 it's in a really really important movie like coming off the back of the Wrath of Khan, which was obviously you know unbelievable and kind of surprised everyone after the motion picture hadn't had kind of underwhelmed. Because you know, after the death of Spock and going into this movie, the future was still you know slightly uncertain as to you know what was going to come next. Like we obviously have the benefit of you know kind of like a future vision to kind of look back and we know what was going to happen. But at the time they didn't. So, like, following up a movie like *The Wrath of Khan*, you had, and because the story was going to just continue, it had to kind of match it in some way to kind of free the next movies up. Because obviously, you know, you weren't going to continue on *The storyline and* specifically. Obviously, *The Voyage Home* did, but to make uh, the movie kind of as important as successful was going to be a huge task for him
0: to do. You. I, I can imagine them now, you know, of, they knew obviously making Can that they were going to do a sequel. They didn't have the story written or anything, but they knew that it was right. We'll, we'll have to do a follow up to this. And then Can was basically beloved, um, where motion picture wasn't. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I can imagine like, okay, pressure's on. Um, crap. And we've sort of left it as a bit of a not, it's not a cliffhanger ending at the end of Wrath of Khan, but it's definitely like, but I want to, well, hang on. Has anyone seen the torpedo tube?
1: I like the fact that like at the end of the, um, like when they filmed the Wrath of Khan, they um, hadn't planned on filming that scene with the torpedo tube at all. Like Nicholas Meyer didn't know this was going to happen. And when I was listening back to Leonard Nimoy's autobiography um, a couple of hours ago, he said that, that when he sat down to watch it for the first time, he had no idea that that scene was actually going to be in it at all. Like, and it's kind of cool because at the time they were kind of there going, well, it's kind of done now, isn't it? Like, you know, we've killed off Spock, you know, can we really go on your with it kind of thing? And like, I know, Nicholas Meyer was no fan of resurrection and didn't want anything to do with it. Like, and it's kind of funny in terms of, you know, like sometimes you just get the right people in at the right time. Like with, you know, Harv Bennett was a you know TV man, and when they were making the when about the film, the you know, Spock going into the radiation chamber, like it was just his thought of television and going, what's going to happen next week kind of thing that he just hooked Leonard Nimoy and just said, you know, is there anything we can do here, you know, just to you know have a thread that we can possibly pick up, like. Can you imagine, say, for instance, if Harry Bennett wasn't on the set that day or if he was called away or if he decided his idea was, wasn't was worth it? Like, how different would it all be like? And it was just one man just coming up and just out and over just going, listen, I have an idea. What do you think it is like? And, like, it completely, you know, pushed trick along in such a kind of way. Like, it's little Leonard Nimoy used to say lightning in a bottle, like, and, you know, they had that with two. And then, obviously, it just was able to perfectly lead into three. Like, when I was listening to say certain uh, with, uh, there's a book about Star Trek the 50-year mission and I was listening to it earlier on and Harvard Bennett was saying that writing Star Trek 3 was so easy because all the plot points were there to just pick up like he said he wrote it in six weeks but it was just really it was a really easy script to write
0: it's, it, it's funny you now I'm, I'm actually working my way through the 50-year mission I think it's, it's a fantastic read uh, and it's, it's dense in the way that I love like I'm like yes give me give me the behind the scenes like, all of that um It obviously would be a bit intimidating to um, maybe more kind of casual fans or people are like, oh, I saw that film when I was a kid or whatever. No, a lot went on. Do you know what, actually? Sorry, curveball, but also not. I remember for a long time, right? I was, for a long time, I was young. And then I wasn't. But we used to watch this film once a year, maybe myself and my dad. And this film... Out of maybe the first four, actually that's not a fair. Motion picture, but anyway, the images, the the actual, some of the actual, um, not even but, set direction, but special um, effects in the motherwork. work. Yeah, thanks. I'm not good at this hosting thing, um, but yeah, but I, I'm trying to think. I suppose set pieces, maybe, yeah, um, are just incredible in this one. Um, even from the from the jump
1: they are and they've really kind of look obviously look you're always going to see a bit of the kind of the you know the black lines around certain things especially as you know quality of movies improve and the upscale and and things like that like but there's an absolute load of like the stealing of the enterprise scene anything to do on the genesis planet you know even grissom getting destroyed all that kind of stuff like it's because again like you know they recycled a lot of shots from star trek 1 for star trek 2 so for this there was a hell of a lot more like even you know to start of the movie with enterprise arriving at space dock for the first time like it's it's absolutely it's unbelievable but it's very much you know a product of the 80s in terms of like those scenes they're very kind of slow paced and that actually you know it very much works to their advantage like you couldn't like if you actually watched the sealing enterprise scene and you t- look, look how long it takes it when enterprise starts reversing to when it actually gets out of space doors like, like you'd never get anything like that nowadays and like all it is is basically the dramatic moment is, is a ship reversing that's all it is and it's all <laughs> about the music that, like nowadays if it, if it was like that you know the ship be firing with weapons to destroy the door and get out and all this kind of thing but like that's all it is it's just a bloody ship reversing the whole time and then it's, you know, it kind of breaks up into stages about what's going on. Like first the Enterprise is reversing, then they're told not to reverse, then the Excelsior is warned to get moving, then it goes back to the Enterprise and they're trying to open the doors and it's not working. But it's, such, it's slow and it's really well built up. Like, But again, the whole set piece is just one ship reversing and it's absolutely bloody brilliant.
0: It's gripping. Oh, it's, And that moment where, you know, spoiler, where they do get out of space dock and the Wrath of Khan theme kicks in there just for a moment because it, it doesn't turn up very much in this film. It's James nope. Warner is back, but just that moment. I still, I kind of get a bit of a woohoo moment every single time because it is—it's it, one of my top two favorite scenes from any Star Trek film. I have so, to say. I
1: remember, years ago, I had it on. Uh, I taped it off the TV, and um, it was on BBC. But when I taped it. Well, just as Enterprise is about to get to the doors, didn't the BBC Signal cut out? And it was cut out, cut out for 20, 30 seconds. So when, Are it came, me. when it came back on, Enterprise was fully gone. So it wasn't for years until I actually bought the official VHS of it. I turned it on. I just forwarded it to that part because it was there going, I've never seen what the hell happens in this moment for so many years. And I thought we'd see it. You actually mentioned the music there. Um, I was this I was reading about what James Horner had said about it, and that he had kind of felt that when he was writing the music for Star Trek 2, that it would be probably picked up again in Star Trek 3. Mm. So he had certain teams that he'd um that he'd written so that could pick them up, like so Kirk's theme, Spock's theme, because he kind of wanted to he kind of felt that a lot of two was bombastic and just kind of big pieces, like, but he wanted it to be a bit more say wistful and personal in the third one so you can t- you can tell the music is by the same person but mm. the, the kind of tone of it is so different i was um watching oliver harper's retrospective on some of the star trek films before he's a youtuber he kind of goes through old movies very 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 good but he was talking about the star trek films and he said about the music one of the problems he had is that he always felt that they should have kept the same theme in each episode in the way that star wars does and i never agreed with that because with the star wars movies it's very much it's a war it's a good against you know the light against the dark and all of them like and the kind of movies are similar because you've got basically three trilogies like so it's kind of a continuing story but with the star trek movies they were so different they were written by different people directed by different people and things like that so each movie really had to kind of have its own personality And the music i always found like so because two and three are so closely linked, it makes sense that James Horner did the music. And then obviously for Star Trek four, it was Leonard Rosenman who mm. did the music. So obviously it's, you know, it, it was kind of different because it was much more fun, but like a couple of years ago, when they released the expanded the soundtrack for Star Trek three, like so much more music than was kind of included in it. And it's just, it's an absolutely, it's a brilliant soundtrack.
0: It really is. I, I love it from the, from the opening credits. Um, and I I compare it obviously to the opening credits for Wrath of Can. Um, it's 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 got that more kind of pastoral feel. It's very much like no, this is not going to be the you know shoot 'em ups that you are expecting, which is also good because we'll talk about the shoot 'em ups and how little shooting up of anything <laughs> happens later on, but. The fact that it, it just pans in over the forest and it's a bit like, "Ah, we're here for Star Trek Three now." Is everyone? Is everyone good? Is everyone feeling good? And then it gets really, maybe lonely is a is a strange way to describe it. But as it goes into that first pan across the, um, the <laughs> I was watching a funny movie recently, The Enterprise. That's clearly been attacked since can and they've done some more repairs because uh i was like somewhere along the way they went does anyone have a picture of what it looked like at rathaghan nah (laughs) slap some bulkheads on it be fine Uh, because it's been battered absolutely battered on the way but uh and also all the crew have been transferred off which i always thought was very funny um yeah let's get off
1: this ship of death like for god's sake I didn't sign up for this
0: absolutely yeah like you know hey I'm a cadet yeah I'm out I'm dropping out now. <laughs> absolutely no way oh you know I'll go and get a job on the merchant man that'll end well
1: um, I, I think one of the one of the things that I've, I really enjoy about this as well especially even reading the background too it is the movie really kind of solidifies the importance of Leonard Nimoy to Star Trek as a whole like because like even with the original series and things like that, like how protective he was of the character of Spock and how protective he was of the quality of the series. And even when he was coming back to do the motion picture, like, again, he was kind of there going, "Mm, like, do I want to do this? Like, and it was was never about money. It really was about artistic integrity. Like, and after they made the first one, he was kind of there going, well, that was a bit of a bore. Um, So, you know, would I better come back for the second one? And then they promised him a dead scene. It was kind of cool. And then again, you know, coming back for this, it was kind of, like again it was all about him kind of saying what can I offer to the series like what can I bring to it like and you know he wanted to you know in it's one thing I think that the next generation films never replicated and it's I suppose it's understandable as well as that the original series movies the first six they really just stuck to Kirk, Spock and McCoy and when you look at the next generation movies they stuck with Picard and Data yeah, where the series of The Next Generation was an ensemble thing, and basically everyone was shoved to the side. But for the original series, it really was Kirk Spock and McCoy, and the movies, Oof, yeah, and the, the movies kept that going exactly the same. So the kind of the feeling of it was still the same with it, like. And with Nimoy then coming on board, like it was again trying to, you know, tell the right story but keep the themes going of friendship and camaraderie and things like that. And it's you know, it's really cool when you read that kind of stuff about somebody really caring. Because, like, currently, you know, you wouldn't really feel that any actor in Star Trek could have such an impact on the series as much as Leonard Nimoy did. Like, you know, he was involved in the, you know, the forming of the story with um, with uh, Harv Bennett as well at the start, like, and things like that. So, it's really kind of cool that he was able to kind of, you know, again step into
0: it and do it in the way that he felt would be right for Star Trek fans he also made an enormous decision, which affected the franchise going forward in that it was originally a Romulan bird of prey. That's right. Yeah. Um, and think, think of how that has defined what the Klingons became in all of the series to follow. And he had designed the bird of prey as well, if I remember correctly, like, and yeah. they
1: came to him and he spoke about what he wanted to see. And like, the Klingon Bird of Prey is one of the most recognisable things in Star Trek, like.
0: I think a, a, a good way to judge, and this, this, this is a plug, a good way to judge of how recognisable or how famous a ship is is what number it comes in at in the Eagle Moss collection, and the Bird of Prey is number three. Oh my word, is it? Uh, after, after Enterprise D and Refit One Seven Zero One? then it was Klingon Bird of Prey. Cheaper's above. So, yeah. I mean, that, And that's, that is now how I judge uh, successful. <laughs> we won't talk about the original Enterprise coming in at number 50 The, um,
1: uh, the um, I think as well like what you're saying about the Romulans like it would have been like you know I can understand why Howard Bennett wanted to bring them in like but from a theatrical point of view it would have been absolute disaster
0: to have had them in instead of the Klingons a little bit because I mean this this movie Wrath of Khan is both a sequel to an episode and yeah. a fantastic film this is a sequel to Wrath of Khan This is for the fans who joined the franchise with the previous film, not the one. Well, I mean, obviously it was for those who had watched the original series, but, you know, potentially a much larger fan base had now come on from Wrath of Khan being what it was. And then, hang on, are, are, are they also Vulcans? You know, I mean, obviously we would know the difference, but you can kind of understand why, well, listen... Klingons, you can spot, you immediately identify a Klingon. Yes. You know, um, And uh, one decision that was made that I disagree with, um, here's my controversial statement, just get it up out front, I don't like the rewrite of Savick. Although I really like Robin Curtis. Um, I don't like how they rewrote the character to kind of, she obviously between two and three went and did Kolonar i think as well i uh
1: when you think of it you have leonard nimoy directing the movie mm-hmm. and he's directing robin curtis and leonard nimoy is the ultimate vulcan even though he's half human so he's not going to direct her like a half vulcan half romulan person he's going to basically say you're a vulcan here's how i expect you to act because as you correctly said Kirsty Alley's performance there is a bit of emotion in it yeah and there were Robin Curtis, there's absolutely none. It's a very stoic Vulcan kind of thing. And I think it's totally down to the directing styles of Nicholas Meyer and then Leonard Nimoy.
0: Yep. And it's not it, its not even that there's one of them better than the other. It's just now that I've seen her as, you know, the half Vulcan, half Romulan, which, by the way, for everyone who didn't know that she was, you know, it wasn't set on screen or anything, but she was half Romulan in Wrath of Khan, and she was most definitely full-blooded Vulcan in search of Spock. And because it was never set on screen, we can just change, change the rules, it's fine. Um And also, it's fu- it, into, boy, it, it, there's it, also something that wasn't said on screen for why she right. doesn't join the, the mission. And it's funny,
1: like, there is the deleted scene out there where where Spock says she is half uh, Romulan Jim. And in fairness, the quality of the footage is absolutely desperate. And you're there going, what was the point in having her being half Romulan anyway yeah. if it wasn't going to be kind of brought up in any kind of uh, in any shape or form and I can I
0: can ask that because Search for Spock I mean I, this is not a criticism it's not exactly a dense film in terms of plot but in, like if Wrath of Khan had introduced the plot threads that uh, you know she's half Romulan let's say they had left the line in right yeah where, go, where to go with that in this film like her, her character journey potentially while she's helping Spock go through Ponfire. But even then, that would be a stretch to go like, well, why would being half Romulan have anything to do with that? The only thing I can think of is, like, you've seen with Star Trek 2 and Star Trek
1: 6, and I suppose with this as well, is that I often kind of got this feeling that Nicholas Meyer and her Bennett, they've made a lot of decisions in a way to almost antagonize Gene Roddenberry. Because... Yeah, Daphne 6 is like he, he wanted to have bring back Savick and be the bad guy. And then Gene Roddenberry said, you know, don't, even though it wasn't his creation. Like, and it seemed to be, you know, like a lot of the stuff that you'd see in the background stuff with Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three. Gene Roddenberry was constantly sending him memos going, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, and all that. And Nicholas Meyer just clearly saying, I have a completely different interpretation of what the future is and I'm the director and I'm the writer and that's my decision to make like, like when I was you know listening to the book earlier about the uh, search for Spock the amount of notes that Gene Roddenberry was sending over about the movie and you know all the changes that need to be made and things like that and all of them were just kind of completely getting ignored like what Gene Roddenberry wanted instead was for Star Trek III for the Enterprise to go back in time to the 1960s and to meet John F. Kennedy and at one point, for Spock to be the person sh- taking the shot on the grassy knoll, now I have absolutely no idea
0: how the hell that was going to work or what would be the point of it. But look, there we have it. I was to meet JFK. No problem with that. But <laughs> what situation would arise? That oh, I suppose actually, uh, are you a Stephen King fan? I can't, well to a degree. Yes. Uh, there's a there's a book eleven twenty two sixty three. It's about time travel and it's about JFK and the assassination. There is there's a way to make it essential, but okay, right, we won't go down that road, that'll be another part. But Um,
1: it it, it was kind of sad in a way that, you know, listening to the memos that were coming over, and then just the disregard that they had for them, and I think one of Gene Roddenberry's kind of close colleagues said afterwards that, what annoyed annoyed him was, he was the one who set up the series, he was the kind of protector of it, and then they come along to kill Spock, then they come along to destroy the Enterprise, and he kind of felt, yo, and he felt they weren't listening to him, and the more they didn't listen to him, the more kind of annoyed he was getting. Like he had a huge problem with the end of the movie as well, because he was kind of saying that should Spock be treated as a returning hero to Vulcan, and should all these people be here for this important ceremony and things like that? Like it was actually interesting, the apartment executives they didn't want the ending to take place on Vulcan, they didn't want any of that. They felt that the ending should have been with the Genesis planet. Um, when they escape it and you're kind of there going like you really have to kind of see this out like you have to kind of end that part of the story like
0: the the way yeah the way they set it up with the character it wouldn't have made any sense to to end it on genesis i i like the idea of you know this fireball ending i get that you know the destruction of the planet basically flipping the end of wrath of Khan on its head you know you had the creation of genesis and the death of spock you had you know, rebirth of Spock and the destruction of Genesis. Um, sure, but also Mount Celea pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, that's actually interesting now because I I know some of the notes that Roddenberry sent over about Wrath of Khan. I know he hated the militarism, and although I I'd have no problem with the militarism in Wrath of Khan. know it was anathema to what he had what he had kind of set in motion for for star trek and the it's funny as well that jerry goldsmith while working on the score for the motion picture had made a bombastic sailing ship kind of score that was rejected and then we got the theme that we all know and love yeah for wrath of Khan, horner was effectively told well, you know, bombastic, and you know, give us three D in space, and give us that kind of idea, and then we get the fantastic Wrath of Khan theme, which I love, and I think that's paired back a little. I it sounds like whenever I hold my breath like that, it's like you know, oh my god, what's Sean about to say now? <laughs> Some of the effects. So, the, the search response. It's it's a beautiful film, but it's in a way it's very static, and I think this is what you were saying as well about the Steely the Enterprise is an amazing scene it's fantastic it's a ship reversing yeah there's you know there's no ships there. you don't have any moments like the Battle of the Mutara Nebula in this one I don't just mean battles in general but oh look there's the ship is it moving not really um, you get nice pans lovely pan of the gris- I love the Grissom I yeah. love the the Oberth class um Love the Bird of Prey and everything. Bird of Prey moves the most out of all of the ships in this film. Bird of mm. Prey, I think, moves the most because the wings move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, what do you think of, say, the new designs that were introduced for this film? In
1: terms of, like, the Excelsior and the Grissom and all that kind of thing?
0: Well, like, like
1: again, Excelsior isn't going to be hugely removed from what the Enterprise looks like and things like that. But again... It's it kind of goes to the whole storytelling. Like if you you know look at Wrath of Khan, it's all about kind of you know age, experience, youth, and all this kind of thing, and growing old, and all that. And then in this movie, you know Enterprise comes home. Enterprise batters Starfleet, classifies the ship as being kind of obsolete, and then you see Excelsior with its you know transwarp drive, and the kind of it's it's kind of thing of. I hear the new kids on the block now and like even style says to scotty like i'm looking forward to breaking some of the enterprises speed records tomorrow and it's so arrogantly said like it's kind of like a big you know two you know one a middle finger up to scotty and all the things he had done and things like that so it's kind of cool in that way that it's you know you're like as i suppose maybe at the time people might have felt that kirk and crew were getting a bit you know too long in the tooth in the movie business anyway even though this is the third film and it was kind of a. this is going kind to of remind people like that again this movie really did solidify you know star trek and captain kirk as being action adventure heroes on the big yeah. screen like is that because in the in the wrath of khan you know it's submarines in space like in this film they're stealing they, they steal a ship you know they beat up Starfleet personnel to you know g- you know there's a jailbreak they steal the ship they come up against um, a Klingon ship with basically no hope of success. They get out of that. They go to a planet that's about to blow itself up. Kirk fights the bad guy. He kills the bad guy. He gets up, takes over the Klingon ship, brings his friend to an alien planet. Like it's, it's, it's bonkers. It's, it's, it's wonderfully 80s is what the whole bloody film is. Like what you said is all about designs and things like that. I love the look of Mount Suleya on Vulcan because it's extremely 1980s. Like It's like Dagobah in The Empire Strikes Back. And like most of the stuff from um, The NeverEnding Story in terms yeah. of, you know, like Falcon obviously is a, you know, a massively progressive, you know, advanced society. But when you come there, it's just you're basically in the desert. You're just seeing this kind of this stripped away. You're just seeing this this place where this ritual is taking place. And it looks absolutely fantastic. It just looks bloody brilliant. Like the, like the red hue of the planet and all that. And it just it looks excellent. Like in the same way. But you said about Grissom as well, like, again, it's a totally different design and it looks so cool as well. Like, and again, a lot of it is kind of, you know, all the new stuff and there's Battered Enterprise and Battered Enterprise is basically the stuff that kind of comes in. And again, you know, any hero worth their salt is the person is the hero who kind of overcomes adversity. Like, And this whole movie is basically adversity. They want to go back and, you know, the Genesis, they're not allowed They want to take their ship. They're not allowed. To take on the klingons they've no power and all this and it's great and the whole film is them on the back foot just trying to kind of stay ahead like and it you know it goes back to what you know when kirk says to bones when they're watching enterprises you know hull flying you know onto the genesis planet and he says my god bones what have i done and mccoy says you know you've done what you've always done um, turned death into a fighting chance to live like and it's brilliant because it completely sums up everything Captain Kirk is about. Like you look at so many episodes of the original series, you look at the Wrath of Khan even, and that's exactly what he does. And that's what makes, yo, know, Cap- Captain Kirk such a really cool kind of character.
0: Like, it's, I was gonna say more so the movie. So no, it's, it's a combination of, you know, the, the age old arguments, Kirk or Picard. And like, Picard for the speeches, but Kirk gets stuff done. Yeah, no, as you said, but he's much more the action hero. Yes, ben, exactly. Then say, well, Star Trek Picard is attempting to do something about that. Not sure how well it's doing it, but yeah, that's fine. Um, the, there is, like, it, it, it talk about images that stick in your mind, but and I realize I'm bouncing all over the place here, but 1701 and her final flight. Mm-hmm. My. I mean, from age dot until now, um, it's, it's just, it hurts. You know, it hurts every single time.
1: I think the sad part is, is that, you know, when we would have grown up, like these movies existed, their sequels existed and things like that. Like, you know, I'd love to be alive when, say, the death of Spock was being kind of spoken about, and people were going, How dare you? This absolutely can't be done. Mm. And then for Star Trek 3, everyone going, They're going to destroy the Enterprise. Like, because, you know, like nowadays, if you watch a superhero film and someone dies, you're going, They'll be alive in five minutes. It's grand. Like, there's death no nothing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And like, but back then, it did mean something. Like, so it had to be kind of smart writing to kind of, you know, get around it and things like that. Actually, hang on a second. I have a question to ask you. And I know this is going to sound like a ridiculously stupid uh, question. When i was seen the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I, uh, one thing I don't understand, right, is so Sarek comes into Kirk's room and he kind of talks to him and he says, you know, basically, why didn't you bring his Katra to the Vulcan? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of there going, right. So Sarek accepts that Spock's body is dead, but he wants his mind like does he want to put it into like a kind of a big obelisk where all these kind of thoughts go or something and then if you kind of say to yourself going okay that's right and Kirk is kind of there going right I'm going to get his body back but I'm there going but he's dead and you've no guarantee like why would you think that he's actually alive so I was kind of there going after that meeting with Sarek does Sarek think that Kirk is going to go off and you know does does Sarek believe right it's fine my son's body is being regenerated on this new planet and he's going to bring my son's body, well, his now alive body, and his catra
0: back, and we're going to melt them together. And like... Like, how could well. you possibly know that? But, it, but, but that's a really fair point, because, you know, only his body was in death. Okay, maybe, right, okay, maybe, so if Spock had given his catra to McCoy, which... Also, by the way, issue with that one, which I will come back to in a moment, but he's given his catra to McCoy, so only his body's in death. But let's say 23rd century medicine, Grant will wall up his body into stasis, we'll figure this out, you know, we'll deradiate him, be grand, or we'll clone him or something. Okay, so we just need to store his catra for a while. So, two issues. Second issue first is does death not exist on Vulcan? Yes. Um you know, it's like, all right, Grant. So, you know, Sarek in 100 years when you're, obviously, you're ailing and you're chatting with Picard, beautiful scenes and everything. It's all oh, grand, yeah. Have we grown the new clone body? <laughs> you know, are they all Vorta? All right, Grant, <laughs> stick it back in there. He's grand. James Frain. All right, come on now. You're Sarek, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, and Ben Cross, but unfortunately, poor old Ben Cross he's, is gone now as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's the second issue. And it's a fairly big one. The first one is, right, if all that Spock was... Was put in McCoy's mind. Yep. Who has been and ever shall be Kirk's friend? <laughs> and it's the question no one likes to really ask about Raptor Camp. It's like fierce, slow, the conversation going on for a man who's actually standing in McCoy's body. That's right. Yeah.
1: Hmm.
0: I was like, oh, have I just have I just unravelled a thread that I didn't want to unravel? <laughs> You know, how many Spocks are there? Is it like a copy? It's a like control and C, control and V.
1: Well, the animated series did pick up the fact that a 20 foot uh, tall Spock was created um, by Stavos Caniculus V and he was going to go around the galaxy bringing peace with him. So there is that Spock out there as well.
0: There's a, there's a but no, nobody talks about that one, of course. Excellent. Like, you know, why'd you leave my boy on Genesis? I didn't. i mean, he's off on, like, Cardassia right now, preaching the good word. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, like, there's, there's literally no way to it. Well, let's see. Can we do this now? Can we try and explain this away in a satisfactory way? No, you can't. There's no
1: way you can explain it because as a movie goer, you're going and going, right? I know that Spock is going to be alive by the end of the movie. So basically, at no point is that actually said, and there's nothing to guarantee that when they go to Genesis, Spock is actually going to be there. One of the things that Har Bennett said when he was writing the movie was he'd written or sorry, he'd read a kind of a fan fiction poem, and it was a poem from the point of view of um, Kirk, like basically, you know, thinking about Spock. And he basically said, I left you on that planet. Why did I do that? And when Harbener read it, he was there going, isn't that actually completely right? And that's exactly what Kirk would think. And if you were Kirk and you were thinking that, wouldn't you do absolutely everything you could to get back there and recover his body, irrespective of what the situation was? Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. And again, it goes back to the whole thing of right place, right time. Like,
0: like I w- sorry, yes, absolutely. I, I hadn't heard that. I didn't know now that that was where part of the inspiration came. I... This, this this my my new new ending uh doesn't uh sit with knowing that they could save him yeah but it does the it, there many cultures i think say that the uh, the soul can't be at peace until the body's at peace and potentially the body can only be at peace on vulcan so i could be okay with that but it's definitely it's a rescue mission like it's not oh, yeah. it's, it, it's it's not just a a recovery mm. um, and you know because I think as well, if it was what I'm saying, like, right, the soul can't be a piece until the body's a piece. I mean, would you really steal the Enterprise? Like, hire a shuttle? Sure. Uh, steal the Enterprise? Steal the Enterprise looks a lot better, but we need to raise the stakes for that one. And it's, if you don't get the Enterprise, Spock's lost forever, but also so is McCoy. So
1: One of the things I enjoyed about the movie as well is the de- kind of the, the development more of the Genesis device and things like that like in star trek 2 it's basically this you know it's a perfect thing you fire this weapon at a planet it's going to be you know it's going to rebuild you know every planet will kind of you know, will become from it like i mean think of it like basically both star trek 2 and star trek 3 are almost the same film like there's basically this doomsday device khan wants it in two the want it in three so i like the fact that they decided that they were going to go you know they were going to change it so they introduced the whole thing of proto matter which is unstable in it like and when Howard Bennett said when he was writing it, you know, he changed the Genesis thing so it was unstable. And as a result, then it's kind of like it's, it's like it's messing with God as a result of it. like, And when he was saying then, like, in terms of returning characters, he was kind of there going like, you know, bringing back, you know, was Carol going to come back? Was David going to come back? And he kind of figured that someone had to pay the price for what had happened with Genesis. And he was there going, if Carol comes back, she's got to go as well. And then it was kind of like, is there a point in killing both of them? So then he kind of felt that it would make more sense to kind of say that David had used the protomatter himself without Carol's knowledge of it then. And as a result then, you know, his death is as a a result of him trying to kind of, you know, mess with God. And it's kind of interesting then in terms of uh, like, you know, you kind of—it's not canon, obviously, with it the way you know because I wasn't introduced until the Star Trek Three. But in Star Trek Two, when they're in the Genesis Cave and Sarek asks Kirk how he you know beat the Kobayashi Maru, and Kirk says basically I cheated, and David is kind of almost like sneering at him, going, "Yeah, mm. the big you know the big hero like, and, and he just cheated, and this is a man saying this knowing that he has used proto matter in the Genesis device, so he's actually
0: cheated as well to try and get ahead. God, like it's. Because you're you're right about David paying the price for it. He's kind of the he's kind of the Oppenheimer, really. Yes. Or, between and because this great, you know, this great experiment, it's the A bomb. It is the most destructive thing that's ever been created in all of Star Trek. It's also stunning that it's never been brought back, considering, you know, like, I just think Dominion War. It's like, oh God, we'd never use this kind of thing. But I'm telling you, if you fired this at Cardassia. Um, but see I
1: think that was the whole thing wasn't it like when you go into tree like if that weapon exists and the Klingons got their hand on it the Klingons wouldn't do use it for terraforming they'd just go to earth or Vulcan fires destroy the whole planet and that'd be it like so you know the weapon well the, the torpedo whatever we won't necessarily call it a weapon it had to be nullified and it had to be kind of explained
0: that this does not actually work that's it and obviously you get the fantastic fiery destruction of the Genesis planet But everything about it, uh, the fact that the people who seek its knowledge die, the people who read the information die, the creator dies, the only good thing, the only genesis to come out of it, of course, is Spock. So it's a big, massive undo button, but done in a really good way. What's great as well, like obviously, look, you couldn't beat
1: uh, Ricardo Montalban's Khan when you're going into you know another film like, but like the casting of Christopher Lloyd was absolutely brilliant. You know, he was known obviously as you know, on Taxi at the time, like, and then obviously mm. we'd have him as Doc Emmett Brown very kind of soon after it, but like. You know, nowadays when you watch a movie, the bad guy has to have like a motivation for what, for being bad and a reason and all this kind of thing. There's no reason with crew. He's just an evil man and he just wants to get a hold of the weapon and just kill people. And it's bloody great. And he's absolutely, he, I love the portrayal of him because he's just violent. Like the way he kills the gunner for destroying Grissom, like <laughs> he calls him an animal after he's basically eviscerated with his yeah, disruptor. A,
0: yeah, he's the animal. Sure, boss. but it's funny as well because you know the way you there's a lot of talk in later trek of you know how to advance in klingon military is to you know kill your commander basically it's a bit like the mirror universe Um, and of course we never see any of that like martok ship that was never a thing and get a bit of that with gowron in the next generation not much but a bit of it with gowron obviously duros is he even a klingon um but then yeah with this one it's just like i I both don't want to serve on this ship, and I also want to be the fastest draw in the Empire, because you'd want to be. (laughs)
1: There's a very funny, like, the Klingons are warrior species, right? And that's absolutely cool, right? But you'd often wonder, like, with the creation of, you know, their ships, faster than life, travel, with their cloaking device and all that, there's clearly scientists out there in the Klingon world. like, And can you imagine them in school like being, you know, properly kind of, hmm, this calculation works not. Sure, Klingon warriors are bully; these guys left, right and center. So I always find it funny that at the start of the film when they're looking at the Genesis uh, video, uh, Maltz, the kind of the tall Klingon, he's kind of a bit more of a thoughtful kind of fella. And I'm kind of there going, I'd say he hated serving on that ship. Krug. I'd say Krug had no time for this guy. and I say, oh my God, this guy's actually got a use for me this time. Like, it's just so funny because by and large, Klingons are just kind of, they're slightly kind of tick at times, but they're, you know, they're brutal kind of warriors-like. And then there's this, this one thoughtful Klingon on the ship, and I just think he's, it's. I love the character because it's so different, and he's a thoughtful kind of person-like, but it's just so funny to
0: see the kind of contrast between him and Krug on it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I For, for years, you're, you're dead right. I've had this image of, you know, well which of the Klingons went to engineering class and which of the Klingons went to medical school? You know, like surely someone, you know, who composed the Klingon operas, you know, these kind of things. But yeah, particularly like this ship, these are all thugs. Great. Who taught them how to fly a ship? Exactly.
1: (laughs) What did you go to pilot school like? You're useless. You're dead. That's it. No mistakes. (laughs) <laughs> it's like something like from Soviet Russia or something like that like you're weak you're dead that's it
0: I graduated first of my class no I survived <laughs> that's how it works yeah but um, this
1: the set for the Klingon bridge as well it's so cheap it's just hilarious like it's just it's like even the doors they're like can you see the transformation between Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4 and then you know the, the look from 4 continues on throughout the rest of Star Trek like yeah. but it's just so kind of, like, like in fairness, some of the movie does look kind of, you know, cheap enough, like because obviously, obviously budget and all that kind of thing. But it's just so funny. Just this elevated chair, like, but it just looks, you're kind of there going, there's nothing else in this room. Like, there's just a few blinking lights, but that's about it.
0: like, I think I remember reading somewhere that they tried to go like, oh yeah, that was like the battle bridge. And then the real bridge shows up in Voyage Home. And it's like, yeah, okay, whatever, whatever makes you happy. That's fine.
1: there's there's, there's always people who try and explain away just a normal straightforward where you can go and say look it's just crap it looks crap it was crap at the
0: time it's crap it's it's, it's aged it's not the targ looks great but i mean and i with all love to the people who operated that targ i mean like 1984 how are you yeah that like that targ didn't even move like basically the head
1: the head was the only thing that could possibly move on the targ like
0: it's a tongue that's about seven foot long that's clearly just like a piece of rubber with a forked end on it Like,
1: i enjoyed reading as well about say william shatner and his when they originally had written the script like and it was so funny i was listening to his uh movie memories audiobook earlier on and just you know william shatner is william shatner and will be william shatner forever and he was just kind of talking about like he had reservations about the script like and he was kind of there going I even spoke to a lawyer about was there any way for me to get out of this they're kind of there going Jesus Christ Almighty there's so much about Star Trek he just did not like at the time and things like that and when he spoke to Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy like they were saying that he did have some you know actual reservations about it like and he was saying that a lot of the original kind of script they were kind of they were reacting to stuff and they were really leading their own charge and he kind of felt that they should be so obviously from that point of view, he was right. But it was just interesting that when he was kind of talking about certain scenes that he, you know, when after they get off Genesis, and there's a scene with Kirk and, or sorry, McCoy and Spock in one of the rooms on the Klingon Bird of Prey, and it's the two of them just talking, like, he was there going, I should be in the scene they're going no you really shouldn't be in the scene is there no 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 I should I should absolutely be in the scene going, no no bill there's no reason for you to be in the scene at all and then he was talking about the final the colonel's not corner ceremony the um this one is faltor, faltor pan. pan yeah, yeah the Faltour pan ceremony and he was kind of saying but I'm standing around should I not go up and try and get you know some things working here like and they're going, no no
0: absolutely not like what, what when you went to Vulcan priest school <laughs> like, did you do that while you were becoming admiral because that would be very impressive I think the way they said that
1: they explained it to him they're, they're going you want to be the quarterback who calls the play who throws the pass who catches the ball who runs for the touchdown and who leads the cheers and things like that but what's really interesting is then is when you actually watch the end of the movie and everyone hugs um, Spock and the camera kind of pulls out have a wide angle shot. Do you ever notice
0: where William Shatner is standing? Um, he's facing the camera, right? Like, but he's one of the few that, because they're all looking at Spock. But when you actually have the, there's
1: kind of a group shot at the very end of it. And they're all kind of surrounding Spock, but they're all kind of toddled in together and kirk is just off to the right on his own and Gosh, as somebody Batman. and somebody said in the in the in the book basically we're going like he knew exactly where his light was like that he was standing off on his own again it's very smart, like as you know, he was very protective of the character, and like you know, you'll always know that he is off on his own in the well, I thought everyone would have spotted that until I asked you there, and you were there going, yeah. ah, <laughs> he was he was somewhere, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. sure he was on Vulcan.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's I mean, like, whatever, whatever about the, the man is that Shatner, as you say, Shatner Shatner, Shatner, gone to Shatner. But some of the calls were good. You know, I, I think, did he improv falling down after hearing the news about David?
1: No, they, when they spoke about it, um, they were kind of, there going like, what would, if you got that kind of news, what would you do? Mm. And I think the original time he, he didn't really, I, I think he basically accidentally fell backwards. Like, but then they kind of planned that it would actually, because they had to make it in a way you know had to make him vulnerable like like if you think of it like in the scene in star trek 2 in the regular cave when he's talking to karen marcus it's absolutely brilliant where like he basically you know says i know nothing kind of thing like you know like i'm old i'm worn out and all that and you had to have you know a comparable scene to that in the search for spock and like you know the death of his son who we only met like only a couple of weeks previously it's brilliant because you know In the original series obviously there wasn't a whole lot of a character for most of them with the exception of say Spock like and then in you know the movies they had to kind of bring it on like and obviously it's really kind of it's kind of a shock that you know David is kind of is killed off like and William Shatner said that you Leonard Nimoy said that he felt it too hard to give him direction for the scene because he said this is very personal to your character and you know the character better than I do. And he said, what do you think would happen if it was the case? And William Shatner said, I think he'd he'd go backwards. He'd kind of, you know, he'd feel almost like he was physically hit by it. It was actually funny as I was listening to that today. All I could think of was, is that if you remember in Star Trek six, when the cloaked bird of prey shoots at the Enterprise for the very first time, Enterprise's Kirk's reaction is to get the ship to back off. I was all thinking, isn't that just mad now that when his son died, he went backwards and when the Klingons attacked him, he went backwards his son? Well. That's completely my
0: own stupid theory that I no, thought No, I like it and... because it's like it's, you've been hit so hard, what you do is you stumble back and he's made his ship stumble yeah. back, if you like to the point where, and it is because it's definitely a scene that is, they bring attention to it because Chang says, what's she doing? Yeah. um, So God, well, spot. I mean, I've seen Undiscovered Country once or twice, show um, maybe uh, a week, but uh, I hadn't, I hadn't put the two together. But I like that, if deliberate or no, I like that. That's the thing. That is what Kirk does when he, when they really punch him on the nose.
1: Well, what's great about you know, Sergeant when I was watching it there on the weekend, the start of it is kind of slow enough, like by and large it is, and but it's when they steal the enterprise. It just keeps on going and it keeps on going And as we discussed about you know the scene with stealing the enterprise it's just a ship reversing like when they arrive at genesis and the klingon ship is there like like it's the tension just keeps getting ratcheted up the whole time the music keeps on building you know the enterprise goes to red alert so everything the color changes it's the red it kind of comes over it's the same with the klingon ship it's just brilliant again it's so slow it's so built up and it just keeps on switching between both ships you know and what they're doing to get ready like the Klingons think they've got the Enterprise the Enterprise says right we know the Klingons are there but we don't know do they have any shields or you know we can't raise our shields or we'll alert them to our presence and it's stuff like that that I absolutely you know love about these movies of the 80s because I think you were mentioning it earlier when you actually look at the six the original six movies There's actually very little action in them. Like like Enterprise fires the grand total of two photon torpedoes in this movie. That's it. And the Klingon Bird of Prey fires one back at it. And well, granted, it destroys Grissom as well. But it's not, the whole movie isn't about the action. It actually, it's about the characters. It's about about the drive. And it's, again, it's, that's why these movies are so successful in terms of, and that's why they connect with the fans so much. Because the whole movie is basically what they, they put their entire lives and they put their entire career on the line for the chance to possibly save a friend of theirs, and that's what it is, and it's 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 so kind of, it's brilliant. It's it's a lovely kind
0: of kind of way to look at it, and like you know that they'd be willing to do that. It's, I mean, may, maybe if I was to say uh, you wouldn't get away with a film like this today, that might be very general. But I feel like because this is a although as you're right, it's not an action heavy film. It is an effects heavy film. Yeah. There is a lot going on visually, so automatically that means budget. Yes. You know? So you'd be like, well, we need to get bums on seats, get some popcorn munchers in there. You know, so let's blow up some stuff, which in fairness they do, but it's definitely it doesn't lead the charge. No. It's, a of, it's a bunch of middle-aged men going to go and save their drinking buddy the film.
1: They were, William Chandler was saying that the original fight between Kirk and Crew was totally different um, originally, but they just didn't have the time and the budget. So he said, just turned into a normal fist fight. And he said that, he said he recycled some of his moves
0: in the original series. Now, let's be fair. The original series moves were absolutely hilarious. I will hear nothing against the Gorn fight whatsoever. That is the greatest (laughs) fight in the history of television.
1: And like, it's just, you know, so much of it, it's, it's just... It's a very funny fight in a way. Like, I love the fact that, yo, know, after crew kind of falls down onto the kind of lower level, it's like Kirk, he's not waiting around. Like, just jumps straight at him. Like, just yeah. yells, he's doing it. Like, it just, just keeps the fight going. I love the fact that there's nothing in Kirk's mind other, I'm going to kill this guy. That's it. And it's great, because I'm there going, love it, there's no messing around. There's no long bits of dialogue. It's basically, he killed my son, and he's, you know, let, let me have to destroy my ship. I'm going to kill him, like. And I love the fact that, yo, know, his, you know, his line of when kicking him off is, I have had enough of you. It's just delivered in the, you know, in the stereotypical William Shatner kind of manner-like. And they wanted Richie, I think, and say, something like, you know, this is for David, but like, it kind of works better this way, I think, because it's slightly less kind of, you know, vengeful than
0: kind of, you know, if you'd said the other thing, like. I mean, it's still pretty, I mean, he does keep kicking him till he falls into some (laughs) lava. Like, I think there is, there's a hair's breadth where he's like, I'll help you up and Krug just having none of it. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but rather like, I save myself, I'll kill us both.
1: When you go on from that, what I think is absolutely hilarious is, you know, there's only one Klingon left on the ship at this point. And Krug is ordered him to beam all the, you know, the Enterprise people up onto, onto the ship and things like that. And then just as Genesis is destroying itself, Kirk picks up the Klingon communicator and just basically repeats what Krug says. Don't you think the Klingon will go? Wait a second, that's not Captain Krug's voice. What's going on here? Hang on, that sounds like a human.
0: I'm going to energize. Wait a minute, that life sign isn't Klingon. (laughs) Uh, What's going on here?
1: (laughs) Because what's funny is then is when when Kirk comes onto the ship and the door opens, the Klingon turns around and he shocks her. Oh my god, this isn't Krug. Who are you? (laughs) You had one job, (laughs) Moss. One job. You think as well, Klingon kind of your voice recognition will go. Hang on a
0: second, this is a human voice. This is not Captain Crew. Sure, sure didn't they have that whole thing now in Star Trek Six? which they have to read the books and everything, They'll, they're <laughs> going to recognise the universal translator. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is yes, now. It's 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 gas. And I love uh, also John Larroquette. What a great man. Yes. Never had any impact whatsoever in my entertainment life, and yet I know his name, and I'm delighted he was in the film. Is one you wouldn't kind of think would be kind of in it actually.
1: Oh, here's another random bit of information, it's a little bit of trivia. The voice of Space Doc um, when Enterprise is reversing the voice that says, warning, space doors are closed. Oh, yeah. That's the voice of the Deep Space Nine computer.
0: Is, oh, uh, Julie. I have no idea. Um, well then in which case it's definitely julie all right is it now is it yeah when? yeah yeah
1: i happen to have memory alpha open here let's just find out now
0: exactly ch- i really hope i'm right now but oh that's sorry now that you say it no too, oh, no too late
1: no too, too late too late i have no idea i can't find oh, it. Right, crack i was gonna say no now,
0: i was gonna say now that you say it and this is in a way this is very very sad but in my head yes i can hear Warning! Space doors are closed, and I can also hear, you know, weapons systems activate or something like that. But yes, from DS Nine. Oh my God, Sean! But I think also, one, I'm delighted with myself.
1: I think one of my favourites of trivia is that um, Ronald Reagan, in his book uh, that he, where he had his diary about his time in the White House, that they watched Star Trek. Tree on the 20th of June, 23rd of June, 1984, and his entry into his diary was After dinner, we ran Star Trek Tree. It wasn't too good. There we go. <laughs>
0: Mr. Film Critic Ronald Reagan himself, not yeah, a fan like, of Star Trek Tree. Well, he mustn't have been too put off because <laughs> I think he visited the set of five. Four. F- oh, it was four he visited, yeah. Um, and he like he was on the set of The Next Generation as well. That's true, yeah.
1: But I think as well, like when the you know when you go to Vulcan as well, there's a wonderful kind of sense of mysticism about the whole thing. Like yes. the like, there's a wonderful sense of culture, and like that this is not a human planet. Like and this is totally different. The whole thing, like the you know the clothes they're wearing, how the kind of the um, how the process works and things like that. It's real, real sense of like again, it's something that I'm I'm not ragging on the Star Trek Next Generation movies. I swear to God, I'm not. <laughs> But it's just. It was, but even that first piece of crap. <laughs> but it's a real sense of world building, and it gives it gives more kind. Of, again, what's great is because obviously with Leonard Nimoy, you know, being Mr. Vulcan himself, like he would have helped kind of you know plan it out, work it, and all that. And it just it's a real kind of sense of the planet and the kind
0: of people and their culture and things like that. And it's it's so well done. Um, and as well, as well. Because I remember as, as a much younger person watching the end of it and going, those Vulcans are assholes. They make them climb up all of those steps. <laughs> but actually, it's all just part of the ritual. Yes, um, We're just coming up toward the end of this now, but there is a, we need to talk about the Ohura who's not in the room. Oh, yes. Um, because the novelization explains it away, but the film, it, it's a bit of a boys' club in the film, isn't it? Oh,
1: totally, complete. For like you mentioned a few minutes ago about the um the them reading the books on the enterprise for Star Trek Six, trying to get the Kling, the you know, the Klingon right. And uh, who are, like Michelle Nichols was outraged at it because she was there going like this is the communications officer of the enterprise, and she would have studied languages for you know decades and she doesn't know basic Klingon. Yeah.
0: And it's one thing they did, I have to say, in fairness to the Kelvin universes, which I do like, it's one thing they rectify. Like, yes, of course, Uhura speaks Klingon, of course, she understands Romulan because you would imagine basic skills need for that role. Not basic skills, I mean, like, I would not be expected to understand Klingon, although I can speak a bit of it. Um, move swiftly on, Sean, before you have to speak a bit of it. Um, and yeah, I just th- it does kind of stand out because it's not even just Uhura reading the book, it's everyone, you know, yes. everyone on the bridge is like. Oh.
1: But in this movie, she completely got short drift, like, just kind of in like, granted she had her moment with Mr. Adventure and that is pretty kind of cool, but like it's just kind of, yeah, you're not
0: coming on this adventure with us. That's it, exactly. Yeah, all my hopes. All right then. Um, in the novelization, so have you read the novelization or did you read this? I I no idea did. I discovered this on Memory Alpha. So, so did I. <laughs> yeah, great. So what Uwara was doing, and they should because even a line of it is like well, is she not going straight to Starfleet jail? Like, how does yes. she just rock up to Vulcan at the end, you know? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so she stayed behind to block communications, so that yeah. Excelsior couldn't call for help. Absolutely yeah. fine. And also it ties in, gives Sulu a little bit more depth as well, because apparently Uhura had a big grudge against Captain Stiles, who she felt robbed the captaincy of the Excelsior from Sulu. Yes. Uh, which I thought was brilliant, obviously introducing that Way earlier in the franchise, yeah, and then she pegged it to the Vulcan embassy, and Sarek gave her asylum. I was there's like, okay,
1: yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot going on there, like a yeah. hell of a lot. Like, I
0: was like, all right, Grant, but in fairness, you're you are dotting every i and crossing every t there. Yep. Yeah, so then, yes, and then they together traveled to Vulcan, and she was sitting there for the whole thing going, Please show up, please show up, please show up. Please show up. <laughs> so, my career is in the pan, um, and yeah. I kind of need you to get out here as quickly as possible. Yeah. In the meantime, she's on the way going, like You know, like this could go badly. Are there any whale probes out there? Because <laughs> that would really help us out now in a few weeks. Uh,
1: so, so, Sean, the question is, Would you
0: recommend Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock? I media. 100% yes it is I think it is a fantastic film uh, is it Wrath of Khan no no it isn't but it's I, say, I feel bad saying this but it's not five either uh, mm-hmm. it is it is it is a very solid film it doesn't work on its own I say it doesn't work sorry I mean you do need to have seen Wrath of Khan there's yes. no two ways about it it is very much a sequel um, and in the same way that Voyage Home which I love you do kind of need to have seen search for spock less so oddly enough even though it's all set in a a bird of prey um it's still not as oh no hang on no it's pretty essential yeah the three of them watch the three films back to back i really really like this film what what about you where where does it stand for you say in the trek pantheon
1: well like again it's probably it's
0: close on got some of the, you know, the best set pieces in
1: any of the movies that are kind of there like I completely agree with you. I'd say you can't watch it without having watched the wrath of Khan but the thing is though to get the most out of them you really have to have watch the original series and understood the characters kind of relationships and things like that as I said at start, it's a really important film because it had to continue on from probably the greatest Star Trek film ever and then that freed them up to kind of you know be you know, allowed to do whatever they want for what it is, I really enjoy it. I think it's a really kind of fun adventure film and it's got some unbelievable set pieces. Absolutely.
0: 100%. And also, the, the, the one thing that I really wish hadn't happened, I really wish they hadn't shown the Selfless Brokes in the trailer. Oh, yes. And said, join us for the final adventure of the Enterprise. Spoilers? I mean, lads! That would be I mean, like, you know, here's the trailer for the Wrath of Khan. I have been and always shall be your friend. What? I did like the fact that they brought they
1: kept the destruct the sequence the same from the original series episode at like that, but Your Last Battlefield.
0: That's kind of cool that they went back and said we're gonna, you know, keep that exactly the same. That was that was spot on because like it is, it doesn't look like it, but it is exactly the same ship. Actually, now here's the last, the last couple of things. One is that the it is the same ship because on the graphic on the very beginning of the film, where they're the registering that McCoy is in Spock's quarters. That's right, yeah. It's Matt Jeffrey's original, original design. Original okay. um, And Chekhov speaks his Russian as he goes, I locked that myself. Of course, I don't speak Russian, but that's what he was saying. Thank you, Memory Alpha. Um, do another thing I just want to say is, I really wish they'd given a bit more kind of a celebration to Scotty finally making captain. But the thing is, though, was he actually captain or was he captain of engineering? No, he walks out with the bars. He, he has, as far as I'm concerned, he has the captain's bars. He's good to go.
1: He does, but uh, as we we're also saying in memory health, because that's exactly what we looked <laughs> up. They were saying it's possible that the enterprise computers weren't updated because he was. He was saying they t- said you're being transferred to Excelsior's Captain of Engineering. So who the hell knows? Even though he has the crack badges on his
0: uh, jacket. That's true. That is uh, for when we discuss relics. We'll, uh, we'll 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 go through that one. I believe but anyway look in the meantime uh thank you again for sharing this film i love this film it's great that's so good um we'll have you back uh probably like tomorrow so don't (laughs) make plans Uh, but in the meantime everyone who wants to reach out and get in touch and chat to you where can they find you
1: on twitter at joseph hurley And that's really about it. I really don't think people should be
0: following me on Twitter, Sean. I keep trying to tell you this and you won't listen to me. I know. I think it's great. Whatever distracts people away from my own dark and terrible deeds is great. So yes, follow Joe for his dark and terrible deeds. But in the meantime, guys, that's the end of our podcast this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Whether you think we're mad or crazy or just generally think we're on crack, let us know. You can catch us. Well, you can catch myself on Twitter at Sean Ferrick. If you've enjoyed what you heard tonight, please consider becoming a patron over on Patreon. Every single donation goes such a long way, especially when helping small creators. So it's really, really appreciated, and you are all bleeding legends. And thank you so much to my patrons who are already there. We'll be back next week for another episode of You're on Crack, Mate. I've been Sean, and you've been awesome.